Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I'm pleased to welcome Randy Shaw, who is the author of Generation Priced Out, Who Gets to Live in the New Urban America from the University of California Press. Uh, Welcome, Randy. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, So before we dive in and talk about the book itself, I wonder if you might tell our listeners a little about yourself and your background and how it is you came to write this book. Well, in 1980, I co-founded an organization called the Tenderloin Housing Clinic, which was in the Tenderloin neighborhood of San Francisco, bordering Hastings Law School, where I was a law student. And then in 1980, I got very involved in the Tenderloin and the social the struggles to preserve it against gentrification. I have a whole book about it called The Tenderloin, Sex, Crime, and Resistance in the Heart of San Francisco. So I've been here for 40 years. Uh so we started the Tenderloin Housing Clinic, and I was a lawyer, and we did. We were primarily just exclusively a law office representing tenants from 82 to 89. Then I had an idea for housing homeless people, and the city of San Francisco said to me, well, it's your idea. You better implement it. And so we became offering services of housing homeless people, and today we are the leading provider in San Francisco of, of, of permanent housing for homeless single adults. We house, we lease 21 SRO hotels, housing over 2,000 people. We pay the rent for another 800 people through a payee program. So most of our uh, workforce is is staffing in hotels and providing services to formerly homeless people. I'm very involved in housing policy and land use policy, and we still have a, a big eviction defense uh representation network defending tenants against no-fault eviction. So we do a lot of different things, and I've been involved in housing for, for a very long time. And so um, so I want, I want to talk about this book, which is about uh, gentrification and the affordability of housing, not just in San Francisco, but in uh, a host of cities. Um, and I thought maybe we could do this in two chunks. Is One is to, to maybe have you talk just a little bit about uh, the nature of the problem and maybe the ways in which you think it is similar across the cities that you look at and the ways in which it's different across the cities that you look at uh, and sort of how we got there, right? What happened? Uh, and then we will, after that, circle back around and, and talk a little bit about what we can do about this. So uh, tell us a little bit, what's the nature of the problem? How did we get here and where is it the worst? Well, just that I can answer that by sort of talking about how I ended up writing this book. So people, sure. you know, this book is not about housing homeless people or very low income people. It's about the pricing out of the working and middle class from our progressive cities, our blue cities. All Everybody who is not rich, really, right? People who uh, are working people or middle class people who earn too much for federal subsidies. So there's a whole separate problem about people who are very low income and need assistance to afford rent. I'm writing about people who should be able to afford rent in cities, historically have been able to afford rent, and now due to various factors which I describe in the book, uh, no longer can. And I ended up writing the book 
because of the ghost ship fire, which many listeners may remember, December 2nd, 2016 in Oakland, California, where a warehouse that was illegally being used for housing for artists and musicians had an event in an evening, a fire broke out, and 36 people died. And even though only one of the persons died was a resident, the whole nature of having artists and bohemian types having to live in an Oakland, dangerous Oakland warehouse was shocking to me because Oakland was always the place that was the affordable alternative to San Francisco. So I realized something is really wrong with our cities that places like Oakland are pricing out people. And I started going city after city, Seattle, Los Angeles, Austin, Minneapolis, and finding the same story where people who historically have been able to afford, you know, teachers, nurses, firefighters, they've always been able to afford to live in big cities, and now they can't afford it anymore. And it's all because of misguided land use policies over the last 30 years. So so walk us through that. What, what kind of policies are we talking about here? Well, the big picture problem, in order to have affordability, you, either, you have to both protect tenants and protect rental housing stock and build enough housing to meet population and job growth. And so you have most cities have failed to build anywhere near enough housing. And San Francisco shows that even if you have the strongest rent controls, strongest eviction protections, strongest anti-demolition controls, if you don't build enough housing, you're not affordable. And and that's so you really have to, you know, it's been pretty obvious since the late 70s when young people began moving back to the cities and the whole urban gentrification motif evolved first most prominently in like Boston and, and New York City and San Francisco. Uh, we raised population. And we didn't build housing to meet the new people who are here. So the people who are here are pricing out people who are already who, who are no longer raising up rents due to the artificial supply. And then as decades passed and populations grew, and we had immigration in Los Angeles and immigration in San Francisco, we still didn't build housing to meet the new population. So logically, when you have a scarce resource, its value skyrockets. So, so here's the stupid question: Why, why didn't we? I mean, we sort of most of the cities, all of the cities, really that you talk about. Part of part of what happens here is right; they become increasingly attractive places, and very large numbers of people start moving into them. Why didn't we build housing? Why was there not any effort to to make it possible for for them to have places to live? Well, I think the big picture and where we stand today is you have vast sections. The majority of almost every city of the dozen I discuss in my book is zoned for single family home only. And so when you have exclusionary zoning, you can't build apartments in the majority of San Francisco Austin, Los Angeles, Seattle, and Portland, which are considered renter, heavy renter cities, especially like San Francisco. So what we have is homeowner groups under the guise of neighborhood preservation. And I often talk about the generational divide because they tend to be dominated by boomers who bought their houses before they were expensive, have just said, we're not allowing any tenants in our neighborhood. So the tenants have to compete for the half of the city where they're allowed to live and there's not enough housing built there. And there's all kinds of processes by which it's very difficult to build housing in many cities. Seattle and Denver are an exception. But in, in a city like San Francisco, it takes four years to get it from the time you apply to the time you can open up your place. I mean, and that's at the fast track. So our system is geared up under the 
the uh, illusion of neighborhood preservation or preserving neighborhood character has become to mean don't let apartments be built in our neighborhood. And it's had devastating consequences for, for millennials and the working and middle class of today. And as, as you point out in the book, there's, there's a particular kind of irony at work here, right? Because the, the places that you are writing about are uh, – they tend to vote Democratic. These are places that generally sort of self-identify as liberal or progressive places, and yet they seem engaged in fairly aggressive efforts to limit the opportunities for working-class people to, to live in those cities. How do you reconcile that? Well, you know, this is why I always say to people that I'm not writing a book about Palo Alto, uh, where Stanford is. Uh, Palo Alto is uh, wants to be an exclusive white enclave. It doesn't allow housing to be built. It's very content to have its prices go up, but it doesn't pretend, it doesn't claim, oh, Palo Alto, we're proud of promoting inclusion and diversity. All the cities I discuss in my book claim to promote this, but they have land use policies that go against it. And that's what's so, why I actually am optimistic that if we can just educate people about what's really going on, we're going to start seeing a reversal of policies, and we're, we're starting to see that in city after city as as uh, this, as everyone is sort of waking up and realizing that the failure to build apartments in, in all these cities has really caused devastating consequences for the millennial generation. Um, and, and presumably there comes a point in which these – the very things that made them attractive places for people to move to are, are going to be lost, right? And they're going to cease to be these dynamic, exciting places that people want to live. Is, well, that's the that a possible. See, I, I would say that I'm not sure about that. I think that that if you look at neighborhoods like in San Francisco, with very popular neighborhoods, Noe Valley, Bernal Heights, they're, they're more and more attractive. I mean, they're very small scale. They never have development. And it's great for those living there and who see their property values going up exponentially because by restricting supply. But when you think, yes, they're going to be rich, exclusive enclave. And I describe in Generation Priced Out how these homeowners, many of whom are, you know, most of them are Democrats and many of them are very progressive in other ways, kind of delude themselves into believing they're not the problem. They say, oh, it's evil developers are trying to build these ticky tack apartments. You know, they use a lot of excuse or San Francisco and Seattle and L.A. These are going to be expensive areas. There's nothing anybody can do, ignoring the fact that they're very involved in pushing policies, creating this result. They act like it's just kind of a force of nature. You know, you, we always Bay Area has got beautiful views. Of course, people want to live here. Yeah, well, you're not letting them build apartments in Apple City. That's obviously a factor, right? And I mean, to what – so where's where's the cognitive dissonance sort of happening there? Do you think that folks are, are sort of successfully deluding themselves into really not thinking that they're part of the problem? Or is that just a guise they adopt in order to justify their increasing wealth? I, I you know, I, I really think there's these studies that polls are done all the time. And they, they conclude that when you ask the public what the problem is, they why, they, why they're against housing, they say it's it's because there's greedy developers are the problem. And I, I, I always say, well, well, yeah, because when you ask a homeowner what's the who's to blame for the affordability crisis, they're not going to say people like me because I'm selfish and I don't <laughs> let apartments be built. So they're going to blame a developer, right? So right. I, I do think people do delude themselves, and it's the same thing with the environment. I always talk about the fact that here we have these incredibly long commutes across America. Every city I could mention in my book has long commutes. Austin, Seattle, the biggest problem, L.A., traffic, right? Yet New York City. And yet you have these homeowner groups who are preventing infill housing so people can live in a city where they can take public transit. And they're consigning people 
to have to commute for an hour. I, there just was a story of 120,000 people commuting from Sacramento to the Bay Area. Why? Because Berkeley homeowners don't want anything built in their neighborhood. And yet, if you say to those Berkeley homeowners, are you an environmentalist? They would say, an environmentalist, I drive a Prius, I recycle, <laughs> I have solar panels, uh, I'm really watching my global footprint. Yeah, but you're not letting anything be built here, so people have to commute an hour each way. That's not my problem. You get it? That's how this kind of dissonance, they don't acknowledge that their anti-infill housing policies are causing terrible greenhouse gas emissions. It's, it's mind-boggling. This plastic straw ban, which many of your listeners, are you familiar with that, Stephen, the step plastic? I'm not, actually, no. It's a big issue that it passed in San Francisco and it passed in... Oh, oh, oh the ban on plastic straws. Yes, yes, yes. And you have people uh, all excited about banning plastic straws who won't let there be apartments built in their neighborhood. And they don't see that as an environmental issue. And, and that's well, and of course, yep. you know, second level of irony there, of course, is that if you listen to folks in the disability community right. talk about exactly. what that ban does to to their members. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, so you had you had made reference earlier to Seattle and Denver, among others, maybe maybe doing a slightly better job than others uh, at at least moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about what they're doing and and what you think they're doing right yeah. or better? Seattle, the state of Washington, uh, adopted a growth management plan in the '80s, and so therefore that the state man there's a plan that requires cities to to build infill housing as opposed to having sprawl. They have a similar plan in Oregon and that makes a big difference though. So Seattle also has a housing approval process that is literally more than twice as fast as San Francisco. So if a Seattle developer and a San Francisco developer both submit their plans, one will be get their plans back in less than a year. The other will be lucky to get approval in two years and it can also be three. And there's also all kinds of appeal issues. So the process in Seattle is designed to get housing built. If you meet the zoning, you can build it. San Francisco, doesn't matter if you meet the zoning or anything, there's all kinds of appeals, delays, the process takes forever. It's a system set up not to build housing efficiently. So San so Seattle builds so way, twice as much housing as San Francisco for a population that's smaller. And so, right. you know, San, Seattle's rent and home prices have gotten a little distorted because Amazon is in, has, been, has been in this huge hiring spree. It is the biggest company town in urban American history. It now controls more commercial space than the other 39 top corporations in Seattle combined. And that's put a tremendous strain on the housing stock. But big picture, Seattle and Denver uh, do a significantly better job at producing housing than any other cities. So are there... I mean, I mean, presumably those uh, uh, barriers to speedy development in San Francisco are zoning laws, rules, regulations, policies that have evolved and sort of accrued like a coral reef right over long periods of time. <laughs> I mean, it, it, can you see a way toward a realistic way toward dismantling those? Yeah, absolutely. For example, in San Francisco, any member, no matter what project, total approval, it's all fine. Any member of the public can pay $617 and get discretionary review. They don't have to live anywhere near the site or have any personal interest in it. And that will automatically delay any project three to five months. 
that's crazy, right? Just completely crazy. So we did get rid of that for, for affordable housing recently, which is good. It needs to be – all the supervisors have to do is pass a law eliminating it for all. Now, what happens in San Francisco, the process is geared to allow neighbors to stop other things in their neighborhood from being built. Now, we went through a long, tragic era in this country where white homeowners stopped African-Americans from moving into their neighborhood. And most of these zoning laws were passed in response to that. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a racial component here, which, of course, isn't the factor today. But we need to really, really think that I have a, I'm a homeowner. I have a, I make an, more money in my property values if there's nothing else built in my neighborhood. And you're going to give me power to decide what gets built. Well, most likely I'm not going to support things getting built. It's not how the city should operate or any city should operate. So Seattle doesn't have public officials in the process. It's all done. If you have the, if you meet the requirements of zoning, it's approved. It's not politicized and like it is in San Francisco. Right. Of course, the folks, I can hear folks saying, well, it's, it's, it's not that it's, it's politicized, it's that it's democratized. And don't you want people to be able to weigh in on those kinds well, of decisions? Let me about make a really important point here that I make in my, in Generation Priced Out. It's a very important point because many people unfairly disparage the homeowners and in, then in, in, in some respects. And, and, and what I say is originally, as you, re, as you may recall, in the 1950s and 60s, there was urban renewal which was a very bad thing often, which just put bulldozers and, and destroyed a lot of neighborhoods. Yeah. And the neighborhood preservation movement that began really in the 70s was a response to overreach and to the destruction of quality neighborhoods. Berkeley passed the city's, the nation's first neighborhood preservation ordinance in 1973. And the motives were very good at that time. Unfortunately, what's happened today is this idea of neighborhood input has gone from stopping bulldozers to stopping apartments. And that's really what's happened. And uh, the original – and people who, who were there in the 80s, the, the, the boomers and all, they still see themselves, I'm protecting my neighborhood. But they're really doing the same exclusionary and elitist policies that were racially based in past decades. Yeah. So it, it's – so in the Tenderloin, where, where you've been working, you've been reasonably successful in, in beating back a lot of the gentrification that has taken place in other neighborhoods throughout San Francisco. A, is that a fair characterization? And well, if so, can you talk a little bit about what you've done that's made that possible? I think we've been extremely successful uh, because we are the only neighborhood in San Francisco that'll never be gentrified. And as I discuss in my book, The Tenderloin, Sex, Crime, and Resistance in the Heart of San Francisco, it's a number of factors. One, to be clear, we do not have single-family homes in the neighborhood, so we don't have right. owners. We don't have owners here. So you don't have those entrenched interests fighting those efforts. Right. But also, it was or, built yeah. as a neighborhood. It was built after rebuilt after the earthquake of 1906, and it was rebuilt as a neighborhood of single-room occupancy hotels and studio apartments and one-bedrooms for the most part. So we don't even have we don't have flats, which are often the key to gentry. The gentry doesn't like to live in studio apartments, and the gentry rooms <laughs> without kitchens and private. So we have a housing stock that uh, is not open to gentrification per se. On the other hand, though, we've had a lot of parking lots and we could have had condos and development and high rises. We rezoned the neighborhood in 1985 to prevent tourist hotels and to prevent most of the neighborhood you can't build above eight stories. So we don't have the problem they have in other neighborhoods south of market, which became totally gentrified because through high rise luxury condos. 
We also had, and this is one of the most critical things that separates the Tenderloin from San Francisco's Mission District, which is well known for its gentrification mm -hmm. wars. After the dot-com boom of the late 90s, Tenderloin nonprofits were very aggressive at acquiring housing when properties were still cheap. The mission went 10 years without doing any nonprofit housing. We were acquired, our, our nonprofits were zealously and aggressively taking property off the market. So when the times got good, we didn't have to worry. We had them in nonprofit hands. So we have an extremely high percentage of the Tenderloin off the speculative market because of aggressive nonprofit acquisition. And that's really what other cities can do. And it's a key strategy for protecting your community is acquire sites when in when the when the when the outside the boom times and prices are high and then you right. city own property for affordable housing and that's a critical step which some cities still are not doing but you have to use those city owned sites because they're available for affordable housing you don't have to compete with private developers to acquire them so this is a question that's slightly outside the the purview of what you do for uh, what you cover in the book um so feel free to dodge it if you want to. But so I'm I'm curious, sort of what what are what are those cities where that haven't that where those are whether that's a still possibility, right? Where you can see sort of the the risk of gentrification coming down the pike, but where uh, those kinds of nonprofits still could actually afford to be buying up some housing stock in preparation for that. I think actually most cities. I mean, I think Oakland certainly yeah. a classic example of how they could how they could do that. I think Austin. I was just in Austin, Texas. L.A. has vast areas. I mean, Boyle. Right not yet gentrified, Boyle Heights can still be saved. You also can bring in, and this is a key theme of my book, is you can, if you are allowed to build apartments, you could bring in low and lower income people, working people, middle class people into affluent neighborhoods. We can't just take right. the city is economically segregated and often racially segregated. You have to open up the zoning so that people of all income levels can live in all neighborhoods, right? So it's more than just like we have our you know New York City might say what New York City has vast stretches of low income. I mean the public is not aware because they don't get publicity that and I describe in the book how neighborhood after neighborhood places like East New York had not been gentrified. Now the current mayor is trying to do that unfortunately and it's very it's, it's very sad and I write about it but there's a lot of parts of New York City that have not been gentrified and can be affordable and avoid gentrification if the right policies are implemented. So, so as we are recording this, Amazon has just announced uh, the the so-called winners yeah. of its of its what. Uh, 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 blackmail attempt at stealing public funds to put into its private coffers, if I could editorialize a bit. And one of those cities is New York City. It's Long Island City right across the river on the east side. Um, if that goes forward, does that make it too late for New York City? If somebody, a behemoth like Amazon is going to come in, is that not going to recreate the same kinds of problems that it is created in in other places, in Seattle? In Well, it's going to create a huge problem in Queens. I mean, I think that there's parts yeah. of, there's parts of like Washington Heights and East New York which would not be affected directly by Amazon. But uh, I all all morning I've just been seeing you know tweets from people from New York City rather alarmed as they should be. And what's what's really crazy about New York City is the the 1.5 billion dollar you know tax abatement package they yeah. do bring them there when the people of Queens didn't even want it. 
And the right. public house, the largest nation's largest public housing project, is across the street from Amazon's future site. Uh, they should. That was the wrong location. I mean, uh, they should have gone to a place like Charles, like West, uh, somewhere in North Carolina, which was trying to get it, where you don't have an affordability issue. Uh, but to bring it into a place like Queens, it w- was just extremely destructive, and it's disappointing that both Cuomo and de Blasio are all excited about it. They've lost focus on what the goal is as, as elected officials. Uh, well, fascinating that this is the thing that finally brings them together, right? <laughs> so uh, so let's let's talk a little bit more about solutions. So, so you've already talked about sort of one of the obvious ones, right, is build more housing. Uh, the other is is sort of if 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 you are a nonprofit or a community development corporation uh, that has the ability and the resources, start acquiring property uh, so that you protect it from those market forces. Uh, what else should should people, organizations, or cities been doing to ensure that that people who are not simply uh, enormously wealthy are actually able to live there? Well, one of the really important things is protecting rental housing. And I, I mean, I write in the book about Austin. Now, the state of Texas pre- prevents cities from stopping demolitions, okay, unless it's for historic preservation. So <clears throat> they go into Austin, 200, <clears throat> excuse me, 244-unit apartment building housing low-income families. <clears throat> they evict them all and tear it down, and now there's an Oracle uh, plant there. Now, in San Francisco, if you demolish rental housing, you have to replace it. And if it's rent controlled, you have to replace it with rent controlled housing. That should be standard. You you should you can't lose your existing rental housing stock. But I seen Los Angeles was allowing demolitions left and right, and I didn't understand it. Like why? So politically, we have to not only build housing but maintain our existing supply because if we're losing rental units to demolition, and the cost of building them is so high, we lose out, right? So I think there's a lot of things cities can do to protect their their housing stock, but I think too many cities have this mentality of just allowing demolitions, and people need to be awake to that. And 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 I think there are a number of cities who cannot do a rent control or just cause eviction because the state law pre- prevents it. But even things like inclusionary housing, if which is requiring developers who build private developers to have a percentage of a unit set aside for affordability, it's not the solution, but it makes a big difference, right? Because mm-hmm. that means that in every every project, there's some affordable units. It's not 100%. And you can get into neighborhoods where otherwise they're off limits. Inclusionary opens the door to affluent neighborhoods, high opportunity neighborhoods for working middle-class people. So those are things that are sort of, should be in every playbook for affordability. In addition to dealing with the legalizing apartments in all neighborhoods because it is makes no sense that you cannot build a triplex anywhere in Portland, right? And you, you, Stephen, you know that famous picture of San Francisco of the Victorians in a row? It's in Alamo Square. Sure. Every, that's the most famous picture of San Francisco, maybe next to the Trans-American Paramount. It's a tie. Downtown in the background. What's not shown in that picture is to the right of it, there's an eight-story apartment building. And I bring that up because all of these neighborhoods that ban apartments, they used to allow apartments in the 1920s and 30s when these things were built. And how did it happen that these apartments 
were totally fine with neighborhood character when they were built and for decades. And then suddenly 50 years after they're built, it's rezoned and suddenly apart, new apartments are bad for the neighborhood. Right. That doesn't make sense. That's why many people describe it as we need to re-legalize apartments because there are apartments in these neighborhoods that they're not, that had been banned for the last 30 years. They were built beforehand. So, I mean, I'm, sort of, I'm trying to sort of think through some of the politics of this, right? Because a lot of, of what you're describing are ostensibly simple changes in zoning regulations and related housing laws, but the, the right, we, we, the, that, that the, the, People all else equal who tend to have the most power and influence in those processes, particularly in rich cities, tend also to be the people who are most resistant to those changes. No, so so how do you how do you overcome that? What's what's the is there is there a magic sauce? Yeah, well, let me tell you an interesting story that you know I do come off very optimistic because I do believe we we we're winning where we are winning the political battle, and but this is why it makes it hard. So Austin has spent three years on a land use revision process in order to get some open up single family neighborhoods to like fourplexes, right? Pretty minor thing, but it was a big step for Austin. Bitter fight by the neighborhood groups of Austin who are incredibly powerful and have run the town forever and overwhelmingly white. Not all white, but pretty majority. And they succeed in August. The mayor gives up, derailing the process. We just can't go on. It's gotten too too vicious, too nasty. Our city's being torn in half. And so you could say the opposition won. But the opposition is also running a candidate for mayor in November, the neighborhood leader who's been opposed to what the mayor's pro-housing agenda, who says we have to protect Austin for the current residents, not the newcomers. You get what she's talking about. The incumbent pro-housing mayor wins that election by 40%. And there was a ballot measure on to stop any zoning change that increased density without a public vote. That also lost. So when it came right down to it, the pro-housing forces vastly outnumber the homeowner groups. But when it comes to these land use hearings and who shows up at two o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday to argue about it, those folks have the power. And I think that really exposed the Austin election results exposed that these homeowner groups are an electoral minority. Now in Los Angeles, what happens often, like in Los Angeles, they used to have all their local elections in off year elections, not connected to state and national. So the voter turnout was very low disproportionately favoring older white homeowners. In 2015, LA changed the date of their elections to coincide them. Some cities, many cities, still have their local elections at a time when most of the you know tenants don't vote. So you have to synchronize your elections so you make sure that they're in coinciding, their local ones, with, with state and national. But the point being is, in all of these cities, Election results show the pro-housing candidate winning, yet the day-to-day land use fights make it seem like the homeowners have the upper hand. We have been speaking with Randy Shaw, who's the author of Generation Priced Out, Who Gets to Live in the New Urban America, new from the University of California Press. I am Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. Uh, Randy, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you.